This is Jason Albert, and you're listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. From a 37-year-old upstart master skier in his book, Long Distance, Testing the Limits of Body and Spirit in a Year of Living Strenuously, to his essential and forthright work to curb climate change as a founder of 350.org, Bill McKibben is a core Nordic skier, and as he describes himself on his website, an author, educator, and environmentalist. Maybe we're biased, but his magazine pieces and books are well worth the time. Nordic Nation connected with McKibben, who's no longer 37, uh, back on December 4th, 2017. It's pretty much an all-inclusive interview, climate change, World Cup, Simi Hamilton as an undergrad skier, and his first novel uh, that was released this fall, Radio Free Vermont, A Fable of Resistance. Okay, here's McKibben. First off, uh, not that you really need any intro, but uh, I'm going to have you introduce yourself and how old you are and what is your relationship with Nordic skiing? Sure. This is Bill McKibben. I'm about to turn 57 and I'm um, a writer and environmentalist, but also my vice in the world is uh, Nordic skiing. Uh, some years ago, I wrote a book uh uh, about uh, taking a year off to just train full time for ski racing. And it was a lot of fun. Um, and it, uh, got, I got to know uh, all kinds of people in the Nordic world, many of whom, you now busily interview all the time there on Nordic nation. And, uh, after that, I spent better part of a decade as the uh, faculty affiliate here at Middlebury college for the Middlebury Nordic ski team, which as you know, is a pretty good ski team that sends a lot of people uh, off into the higher realms of skiing once they graduate diploma in hand from this place. And I, I will add too that I'm a devotee of uh, Middlebury's beautiful uh, five kilometer race course up at Breadloaf. Uh, I was up there skiing today, even though we don't have actual snow on the ground, we can now make snow on that five kilometer race course. So lucky for me to get to live half a mile away. Oh yeah. Good for you. Yeah. So it's, so it's at least good, decent coverage to, uh, ski the whole 5k. No, we don't, you don't yet have the whole 5k in cause we haven't had enough cold weather, but, uh, I was there with the, out there this morning and the GMVS, the Green Mountain Valley School was out there practicing and Colin Rogers and all kinds of people uh, uh, hard at work. Cool. Um, are you, do you still get up on like Saturday and Sunday mornings and check and see how, you know, like for example, I know Simi uh, was a Middlebury skier for a bit. Um, do you still get up early and check those results? Oh, yeah. No, I get up early when I can figure out how to get it on the uh, computer to watch uh, Simi and Andy Newell and Sophie Caldwell and all the Vermonters and everybody else uh, out there racing. I got to watch uh, Simi Hamilton uh, ski for his career at Middlebury, and it really was you know, the kind of rare chance to get to watch a really great athlete close up. Uh, and he really was and is a great athlete. Uh, one of the few people, I, you know, I remember 
Andrew Gardner was his coach, the uh, coach then of the Middlebury team. And I remember watching one day when they were doing just this sort of those drills where you'll start and go, you know, 25 yards and then uh, come back and do it again and again and again. And everybody else like me get, you know, when you try to go really fast and really hard, you get a little ragged. Um, Jimmy got cleaner and, and more fluid the faster he went. And that was watching that. I realized, okay, this guy is doing things on a different scale than most people do. What do you attribute that to? You know, I'm thinking, you know, when you were bringing up that anecdote and I know that you worked for the New Yorker way back in the day and I'm, I can't, uh, is it John McPhee that wrote the book on Bill Bradley? Yes. Uh huh. Absolutely. Okay. And I'm thinking about, you know, all these intangibles that these athletes have and, you know, keen intellects, like, what do you attribute? Like when you think about specifically cross country skiing and a guy like Simi, well, uh, I would say like 99% of us start to break down obviously in technique. And it sounds like he is the, the converse of that. Yeah. I mean, it's not just that people have a big engine or something that I've met other people who have big engines. Um, uh, there's something about that sense of where you are in space um, that very few people have, but it seems to me an awful lot of gifted athletes have. In fact, I think maybe that was almost the title or something of that McPhee piece about Bill Bradley. Uh, uh, that, but that sense always that uh, the ability to be the one who's um, uh, seems to be at rest in the middle of all the chaos that's going on around you. Yeah, um, yeah. That's a remarkable thing to watch in an athlete. And I don't have it at all. <laughs> I spent a year, you know, that year training, writing for that book, Long Distance. Um, and and I, I obviously got better and uh, my engine got better and endurance got better and things. But I, I don't think anyone's born, you know, can develop that kind of proprioception Um um, at least I sure couldn't. I still flail like crazy. I mean, I have a dog-eared copy of that book, um, Long Distance, and you know, I hand it out to people every once in a while. And someone had it for about 12 months, and it's really stressed me out that I, I didn't have it in my hands. <laughs> um, but I got it back. And I think, were you 37 when you wrote that? I think that's right. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Um, and someone sent me a quote that that I think is from the book, and correct me here if it's butchered. But you know, thirty seven and quote the age when age starts to seem like age. Yeah. Did you write that? Yeah, exactly right. I fe- I felt like I was really at the last moment when I could do that experiment when my body was still, um, uh, just sort of capable of that kind of growth instead of the kind of decline that begins to come after it. And it's why, you know, it's why everybody in the world looks at Tom Brady or, you know, and just sort of shakes their head or, you know, increasingly Marie Gorgon or, or people like that. Um, um, that sense of being able to defy that process is quite remarkable to see. Nowadays, um, what do you feel like skiing? You know, physically, what do you feel like skiing? Well, I, you know, I love, for me, I mean, I, I still race every once in a while, 
but I'm afraid I mostly do it in order just to justify training all the time. Um, and I, I just love the motion of skiing more than anything on the planet, especially classic skiing. Uh, it just feels right to me. Uh, there's no place where my body feels happier. I, you know, I like riding the bike or, or whatever, but there's a particular kind of endorphin high that, that I get from skiing. And I've noticed it with some other people too, who are great athletes, but skiing is a part of their thing, that there's something very special. And I don't know whether it's the, the trance-like, um, uh, motion of it or, or what it is that one falls into, but it's for some of us anyway, a, 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 a deeply, deeply satisfying, uh, motion. And do you foresee yourself? I mean, I, I know a fellow in town, uh, Tom Gibbons, who's gotta be, I don't know if he's in his mid nineties, but for sure, like 93, I think. And I, I just saw him the other day out classic skiing and it's almost like he, he doesn't miss a day and he's still out there. Is that something you kind of foresee yourself doing? Nothing would, nothing would make me happier. Um, I, I, but I, <laughs> I worry very much whether we're going to have the snow to do it on. Um, yeah. but yeah, the, you know, I remember being in Oslo years ago and skiing out in the Oslo Marka and, uh, you'd see these old guys and I'd stop and talk to them sometimes there. Many of them had skied with the resistance during the war, you know, um, uh, out there, uh, catching, you know, parachute drops from the allies and things. These guys were still skiing every day and they'd hobble across the parking lot, uh, and then click into their bindings and glide away looking as um, just as serene as it was possible to be. And that's one of the reasons I stuck this uh, septuagenarian uh, skier into this novel of mine. I, I, I think it's in American literature got to be just about the only cross-country ski chase scene that there is. And uh, uh, I wanted to make the point that there were some of those old guys were were pretty darn good skiers. Well, let's talk. So tell us a little bit about, you know, the name of your new book. And I told someone this and I was like, gosh, I think it's your first novel. Is that correct? <laughs> this is, this is the first fiction that I've written on purpose. Um, it's called radio free Vermont, a fable of resistance. And it's a love letter to Vermont. It's a, a kind of mash note too to the resistance that I've been a part of for the last 15 years doing climate change organizing and that has blossomed around this country in the wake of Trump's election. In this case, the plot device is that these guys led by this septuagenarian former radio host and uh, biathlete uh, are, uh, uh, end up kind of running a ragtag secession movement in in Vermont and their fugitives and living uh, uh, back in an old farmhouse and uh, so on and so forth. Not only is there this 72-year-old, there's also a, um, a uh, uh, quite wonderful uh, 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 woman who's, uh, uh, who, I, who I have doing something I think no American has ever actually done, winning the uh, uh, Olympic biathlon gold. Um, um, and we're hoping that Tim or Lowell or one of those guys uh, uh, manages that this year. But um, uh, I, I wanted to write a little bit about um, uh, 
skiing at a high level watching her and then write a little bit about uh, skiing at a slightly different level as they have this, uh, at the climax of this novel, uh, uh, as the feds are closing in and they're escaping on skis. The the name is Vern. The name of the the male main character. That's right, Vern okay. Barkley. And you know, as I was reading it, I'm like, boy, you know, I don't know you. I've I've read your stuff for years, um, and obviously, with each piece, although, like, say, each author has uh, most often an overriding voice. Fiction's a little bit of a different game in that you know your task is to sort of dissociate yourself from the characters in a way, yes, and create lives of their own for them. Um, but as I was reading it, I was like, how much of Bill is in this guy, Vern? <laughs> well, there's obviously a fair amount of me. Um, in some ways, there's more of me than in much of my other writing because, you know, when you're writing about climate change and the end of the world, um, one of the things that's sort of hard, bordering on impossible is to be funny. Um, and I really wanted this book to be funny. Uh, all the reviewers happily have decided that it was. And, uh, you know, the last thing we need, in my opinion, this dreadful year that we've been having is another dire tome with a lot of depressing uh, statistics in it. Um, you know, I feel like the whole country has a kind of dose of reverse Prozac at the moment. Everybody's kind of anxious and jittery and whatever. Um, so if I was going to write something funny, this was the year to, to do it. And, and it's funny, but with a, um, but to a point, I, I, I think it's extraordinarily important that people figure out how to resist and also how to do it in a way that, um, that promotes rather than kind of undermines the servility and neighborliness and just um, uh, spirit that makes it uh, worth living anyway. Um, so part of that role in this book is played by something else that I'm afraid is true to my own life. Uh, uh, it's a fairly, it must be said, a fairly beer-soaked book. Uh, uh, that's because Vermont is leads the world in breweries per capita we have the best breweries in the world at least that's what people keep voting and i think it's the perfect expression of the kind of smallness and localness that these guys are rebelling in favor of uh, as opposed to the well as opposed to the kind of huge big corporate uh homogenous everything that um that we're told to embrace anymore so yeah, that that is something. So I live in Bend, where beer culture is kind of a big thing. And I was a little bit struck. I was like, okay, you know, I grew up on the East Coast, and my mom's family is from around the Rutland area. But that was well before the day of microbrew. And I was sort of struck by, you know, beer permeates a lot of the scenes. <laughs> um, I, uh, and, I by the way, I, I loved I loved the. Uh, interviews you were doing with uh, Pete Wardenberg where you were just moving Ooh. from one brew pub to another. <laughs> that was fun. That was, that was, I have to tell you, though, that fun. was like, that was kind of a rough morning for me the next morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One has to be a little careful, you know. Um, I know. Uh, I know. I'm the, kind of a the, lightweight. The way this beer, the way this stuff, they brew this stuff now, they give you a 16-ounce can and it's, you know, 9% alcohol. You've, you've got to, 
you know, six pack of the equivalent of like a six pack of Budweiser in one can. No, I, <laughs> you gotta watch out. I am fully aware. I went, yeah, not to go dive too deep here, but I went the other day. There's this like food car place, and I went and I'm like, okay, I'll just get a small beer. And they're like, oh, yeah, we have 10 ounce glasses. And I thought, oh, but that's like a can of beer. Like anything, yeah. like that is small now. Um, what do you prefer? <laughs> like if you're, you know, out in Vermont, what's your favorite local brew? Well, there's, there's, I mean, that's almost the point. Um, my favorite is usually the one that's nearest to where I am. I mean, if you're drinking beer that starts more than 500 yards from where you are, you're doing it wrong, you know? Um, um, it's, uh, I, I beer something that I've been interested in a long time because I like it, but more, I, I wrote the first article in 1984, maybe for the village voice, uh, about craft brew in America. We then called it micro breweries. And at the time there were 10 or 15 of them around the country. And I went to all of them, uh, Sierra Nevada and Anchor steam. And, uh, and, I liked the taste, but I liked more the idea that this was local, that people were standing up to bigness. And it was really the, you know, sort of where the first shots in that war were fired. And uh, though the world is going to hell, or at least a place of a similar temperature, it must be said, we have a lot better things to put in your mouth than we did when I was a young man. And uh, beer has, you know, the, the great example of that. So, you know, before we go into like some details about climate change, um, but this is something I've actually thought quite a bit about in, in about you in particular. And this is, you know, I don't know you. This is the first time I've ever spoken to you. Um, but I've often thought like, okay, he, he seems like a happy guy. Um, and he knows more arguably about climate change, you know, absent maybe, you know, expert, climate, you know, climate specialist. Um, and you just kind of made the reference how, you know, we are a society in particular the past 12 months that, you know, it does seem like very anxious. These are anxious times. How do you stay positive and, and stay happy knowing what you know? I don't always, I don't always, I I'm prone to a great deal of sadness about the world. Um, uh, which I think is an appropriate emotion. Um, sadness and, uh, you know, a certain amount of fear, although the older one gets, the less acute the fear is and the more acute the sadness. I stay sane and to the extent I do by, A, making sure I ski whenever I can, <laughs> and B, mostly by being a part of this resistance. You know, we started 350.org here at Middlebury College, myself and seven undergraduates uh, eight years ago now. And it's become the biggest grassroots climate campaign on earth. We think we've organized about 20,000 demonstrations in every country except North Korea. Uh, we've, you know, had enormous demonstrate, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets in New York and Washington and London and Cape Town and you name it. And we've, you know, I've gone to jail a fair number of times now and things. Um, Somehow being part of that, understanding that there is a big, broad movement out there and that at least one is fighting is uh, a great tonic. Um, it's, It's when one feels that there's just nothing that can be done. 
that the real despair begins to set in. So when people tell me that they're feeling depressed, I sometimes prescribe um, uh, some activism for a while. Okay. Okay. Um, And how do you, knowing what you do and doing what you do, and, you know, it's sort of your name is obviously synonymous at this point with climate activism, um, and you're obviously a skier. How do you, you know, there's a lot to reconcile there in terms of... I think this is, yes, I think in some ways it's the dumbest it's so dumb that my great passion in the world is Nordic skiing because there's nothing in, there's no, almost no activity you can think of more vulnerable to climate change. So there really is very little escape from the things that I'm thinking about the rest of the time. Um, um, You know, it's no secret that we are losing the snow uh, and and it becomes more apparent year after year after year. You have to go higher up the mountain. The season gets shorter and shorter. It's no mystery what's going on. One way to reconcile that just the tiniest bit is to make sure, and I this this I'm good at, that I never ever ever take a winter or a snowstorm for granted. Um, when it snows, I pay attention and uh, try to soak it all in every bit of the beauty of a snowstorm and then get out and make as much use of it as it's possible to make. Uh, so um, when there's w- one of our, one of our jobs in many ways is to pay witness to the world, beautiful, beautiful world that we were given. Uh, and it's never going to be as integral or, or work as well as it does at the moment. It's going to get worse from here on in, even if we do everything right. So one of our jobs as humans, as the, the only creatures that can, that are conscious in that way is to bear witness to it. And I think one does every time one goes out for a joyful ski. Is there another book in the future where you perhaps meditate on, on it, you know, what you're talking about, you know, seizing those moments when there is snow or um, just being mindful of be, being present in the spot when you're uh, skiing or something like that? Maybe a little bit. Um, um, uh, you know, I'm at work on a long depressing book at the moment, but part of it is about the sort of deeper questions, uh, you know, around um, what it means to be human. Um, we're, you know, we're in a world where climate change is not the only thing that's shifting dramatically. We're very quickly learning to do things, you know, as with human genetic engineering and, and things that I've written about in the past that threaten to really shift our, our, our sense of who we are and what we mean. And I don't think we've thought enough about what that means sports is one of the few places we actually have even begun to think about it because of course we have to deal with the notion that our, you know, our sport doesn't make very much sense as a sport. Um, if we start changing human beings, whether we do it by injecting them with things or, you know, someday genetically doping them or, or, or whatever it is. 
if you can lose the meaning of something as ephemeral and at some level unimportant, I guess, as sports, I, you know, I, I think human meaning in general is probably more vulnerable than we sometimes think. Are, um, are you a parent? Do you have kids? I am. I have a daughter, a 24-year-old daughter, who is the apple of my eye. Okay. So, so uh, maybe no grandkids yet. Not yet. Okay. But she um, was a, Sophie was a was and is a devoted skier, and uh, and one of the things I most hope is that when I do have grandkids, I'll have some years to uh, teach them how to um, how to do all the fun things, how to put the wax on, and how to slide down the hill and climb back up. So one of the, you know, I, I am, I'm a parent of a 14 year old who sort of, you know, had, he's a freshman in high school and he is having kind of an academic awakening and he's becoming a little more, you know, a lot more aware of what's happening in the world. He's reading more and <laughs> which is kind of age appropriate, yeah. I suppose, for that type of awakening. Um, yeah, yeah. can you, I'm just curious, you know, back when Sophie, your daughter, you know, was a teenager and how did you... I'm imagining had to walk a fine line about, you know, educating your own child about climate change, but also, you know, making it so she wanted to get out of bed every morning. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think up to a certain age, um, you know, I don't know quite what it is, but I don't think you should tell kids anything about this stuff. I think the job of parents up to a certain age is to get kids to fall in love with the natural world. And it's hard to fall in love with, you know, we don't normally choose terminally ill people to fall in love with, you know, um, um, it's hard if you're scared about it all the time. Kids do though, start finding out at a certain point that things are not going right. And when they do, I think it's important that they have something to do. Um, and, and when they have something to do, it's gotta be something real. Kids have good bullshit detectors. So telling them that changing the light bulb is going to solve the problem isn't going to cut it. You know, Um, that's why we get them involved in, they get involved in activism really early on. We have, you know, lots of junior high school kids who are leading groups around the world uh, uh, in, in these various fights. Specifically, you know, you've been at Middlebury for a while now. Um, Beyond, you know, you, I, it sounds like you spent 10 years as an academic advisor to the ski team. What is your role with the, with the, yeah, I should, yeah, I should say, I mean, I should, I, I gave them literally no advice about how to ski because they were all a hundred times better than I was. Um, I just would come along and cheer and they needed very little academic advice. If you're, you know, disciplined enough to put in 600, 700 hours a year, training for cross-country skiing, you're probably disciplined enough to get your, you know, sociology homework done too. So uh, the, uh, unlike many of the other teams here, the, the Nordic ski team had to set GPA well above the college average. So it was a very right, easy right, gig right. to be their, uh, their advisor. What was fun was just getting to, to know, um, um, all, all these guys, you know, uh, one of the things that, that, I always sort of talk with them about, uh, and one of the reasons that I think college is often really appropriate, even for, you know, high end Nordic skiers 
is precisely because you've got to spend so many hours out there training that it really helps if you have something to think about while you're doing it, you know, um, not just the mechanics of what you're doing. Now, I know that's what all coaches say here, but nobody can do that for, you know, hour after hour after hour. Uh, uh, and so to have the opportunity to be at a place where you can both be a high-end skier and be, uh, you know, be exposed to the world, uh, be thinking about ideas and things all the time. It was a pretty nice combination. And boy, I had a lot of good conversations over a lot of kilometers with a lot of kids. Did any of the kids give you some like pretty solid technique advice? Oh yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Gardner, Andrew Gardner, the coach was very good at technique advice, but so was everybody else. The problem is I'm such a, uh, you know, have, uh, I'm almost untrainable. I don't have, I'm not a good, I'm a klutz. And really? so it takes a long time to, and, and by now my ski technique after as many years as I've been doing it for life, I've been doing it is sort of locked in for better or for worse, you know? Um, but yes, it's always, it's always good to have somebody ski up and say, bend your knees, you know? Um, uh, and, I was I'm always grateful for it. So, so there are, there are particular skiers in town here where, you know, I can see my eyesight is not great, but you know, I can sort of see them from a distance and be like, Oh yeah, that's so-and-so. Are you one of those folks where it's like, Oh, here comes McKibben. Uh, yeah. I think people can generally recognize me from a distance because I'm sort of tall and flailing, you know? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> it's, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm dependably out there. If there's snow to be had and I'm in town, you can, you're likely to people know where to find me. Um, do you currently teach any classes? I teach classes when I can. I'm on the road so much that it's hard, but I, Middlebury has this wonderful innovation called January term where kids take just one course in January and they take it every day. Uh, I much like teaching in January. Uh, I can usually be around for those that many weeks. And I think it's actually the best thing in the world to, to have one course, spend three hours in the morning at it, and then go ski in the afternoon, uh, in, you know, before the light fades. Um, kids really, kids really, uh, ideas sink in, in that way. Um, right. And, right. It's much. I've never understood why we've developed this thing where you spend ninety minutes doing French and then immediately go and spend ninety minutes doing biology. You know, it's not like it doesn't mimic any other thing that anyone does in one's life. That kind of constant switching. What is you know in a typical month of Bill McKibben's existence? You know what. What are you up to? I mean, I, I know that you do travel a lot. And so what, what does that, so, en- yeah. I'm kind of curious what that entails. Well, for years when we were starting 350, I traveled all the time because there was no climate movement and we kind of had to will it into existence. And I, that was sort of my task. And so there were years when I was away more nights than I was home, which was very hard for me. I love where I live. I, I've divided my life between pretty much between the Adirondacks and Vermont and you know it's hard for me to be away um then now a little less than that I you know I and I try to stay home in the winter if I possibly can uh, I can write and I can ski and that's sort of my time um 
Um, but I do spend a lot of time on the road and I spend like everybody else way too much time on this stupid computer. Uh, we kind of organized 350 because we had no money and no sort of organization when we started, but it was right at the beginning eight years ago of things like Facebook and Twitter. We did a lot of organizing, uh, online. We were always careful about it. We wanted, we knew from the beginning that we wanted to use online tools to get people to do things in the real world. And, and that's what we've tried to specialize in. But I, I spend too much of the day staring at the dumb screen. Yeah. But yeah, that's a problem for everybody, but there's obviously for something like building up an organization and, you know, there's huge efficiencies. We're the best arguments. We're the best arguments you can make for it. I mean, I got to say, I, I, I think looking back, the internet was probably a bad invention, all things being equal. But we've done our best to take it and and make um make the best of it that we can. Who, when you watch the World Cup now, or if you have an opportunity to, uh, who do you look for in terms of technique? And like, wow, that is a beautiful skier. Uh, well, there's so many. I mean, I mean, look, I, you know, I could watch Marie Bjorgen all day, but I've come to really love watching the American, uh, the American women, um, they they ski with such a great, some of them with such wonderful, uh, flair and, and abandon and pleasure. Um, Jesse Diggins seems to enjoy what she's doing in, uh, in a way that's, you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes Nordic skiers spend an inordinate amount of time discussing the pain cave and, you know, looking stolid and all of that. So it's a pleasure to see someone uh, who's grinning while they're, you know, doing this. And, and Sadie Bjornsson seems the same way. And, you know, I, I mean, I've watched Liz Stevens since she was a high school kid. I remember going up to Burke uh, to give a talk uh, and go skiing when Matt Whitcomb was the coach and Liz was, uh, you, know, you know, I don't know how old she was. Um, so what a pleasure to have watched her, you know, grow over the years and, and, you know, watch Andy Newell uh, come toward the end of his career, you know, fighting hard. And uh, it, it, it's, you know, semi I can watch day and night. Uh, uh, but I also enjoy enormously watching the Norwegians. I've spent a lot of time in Norway and come to have a real appreciation for the way that skiing reflects their culture. Uh, in a way that it doesn't really U.S. culture, you know, um, the um, their uh, that kind of um, commitment to endurance, to uh, uh, to a kind of stoicism, necessary stoicism, uh, is very much part of the national character, and it's no wonder they produced good skiers, you know. Um, it's not just that it's the national sport, it's the national character to some degree too. Have you had an opportunity to watch, uh, this new guy, Klebo, this new Norwegian fellow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Klebo seems um, unbeatable. Uh, you know, I haven't gotten a great sense of him yet. Um, um, he seems young and strong, <laughs> um, but he seems like a, like he's a, a, a merry fellow too. And, 
I loved, you know, immediately after his, you know, swept all the races the first week and he was like, but I'm sure Sunby will be catching up soon. You know, it's a pleasure to just be out ahead for a little while until, you know, which I thought was the right spirit to be. If you're the, if you're the kid, right. Uh, right. The right spirit, the adopted. And so I don't know if you had an opportunity to watch, um, gosh, Sunday's Skiathlon, um, that Klebo won, but I don't want to ruin it for you. Have you, do you want me to, I guess I already did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Clavo wins, right? Um, but it's a pretty dramatic ending. And, you know, Sunby. I saw it. Oh, you did see it. comes right around Sunby. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, seriously, right I was, I felt sorry. I mean, I know I shouldn't feel sorry for Sunby. I mean, the, the guy has everything, <laughs> right? But it was just well, so yes, public. Yes. Um, yes, no, it's a, it's an old parable, you know, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me one little bit if Mr. Sunday, uh, you know, uh, somehow miraculously was, uh, uh, there at the end in the Olympics, it wouldn't even blow my mind a thousand percent if old Peter Northug was suddenly right. showed some last flash someplace, uh, you know, uh, it, it, but it's, you know, it's fun to watch Kala come out. Oh and, yeah. And it's so cool. Look great. Uh, it's, it's all, it's all beautiful. And, and the fact that they seem to be taking seriously what's going on with the doping and things, you know, is we may get a few more years of, of clean, interesting sport, you know, which was, which would be, which would be wonderful. Well, anything that you would want to comment on or I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I don't think you asked. Very good questions. Um, I think that one thing that's made me happy is watching the seriousness of a lot of the U.S. skiers, World Cup skiers, in joining in this climate fight. Uh, Andy Newell in particular has been really... Um, mm-hmm. good about organizing other athletes and getting people engaged and stuff. Um, it, it's, of course, really helpful because there's nobody who can testify more to what it all means. I mean, we're really not going to be able to do the thing that we love the most um, very much longer if we don't get a handle on this. And and so it's, um, well, it's it's good to see that kind of organizing going on the canary in the coal mine is one of those overused metaphors but um nordic skiing is pretty much the canary in this particular coal mine and um you know i mean when you watch those endless races from europe where they're on a you know eight meter wide ribbon of man-made snow through an endless muddy you know swiss field someplace you begin to understand that the canary is thrashing around on the bottom of the cage a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was a race last year in France that was still pretty stark. Yeah. It was just a ribbon of snow and brown grass. Yeah. Yeah. So where can uh, folks find your book? Well, you know, you can find it at all the usual places, including on Amazon, but actually, given that it's about localness and smallness, mm-hmm. I'd be grateful if people went to their nearest bookstore um, and bought it and had them order it if it wasn't there. You know, there's not every town left with a bookstore, unfortunately, but you can usually find one someplace not that far away. And 
this is part of the work of keeping them, keeping our places strong and going. If you can, if you have a town where you can buy a book and buy a beer, uh, you've got a good town. There you are. Well, thanks so much for your time. And thank you for your (laughs) decades of, uh, selfless activism much appreciated well back at you and we really enjoy the podcast keep it up man oh, cool good all right have a great day and hope hopefully you'll have some snow bye all right take care thanks for listening to nordic nation and the mckibben interview